This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Welcome to Southern Remedy for Women. I'm your host today, Josie Bidwell. I'm an associate professor of preventive medicine and nurse practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And you may recognize my voice from the Monday show, Healthy and Fit. And I'm so excited to be here with you today to kind of marry those passions, women's health and prevention and wellness. And I have a special guest joining me, Dr. Tara Price. She is an assistant professor of nursing and a certified women's health nurse practitioner also at UMMC. And we're going to be talking about cervical health today and what all that means and the different screening exams you need. If you have a question or a comment for us, you can always email us remedy at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Tara. Good morning, Daisy. How are you? I am doing wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on with me today. I can't believe this is the first time I've had you on the show. Well, that's quite all right. I appreciate the opportunity and actually being available. So that's a first. I know, I know. It's it's a hard time in nursing right now. We're pulled in lots of different directions. So thanks for making the time. Tell us a little bit about, just about yourself, what a woman's health nurse practitioner is and kind of how you got into that. So um, women's health nurse practitioner, of course, is going to be somebody that treats only women. Now, that's women from, you know, early um Early on, so it could be your preteen, even some of your children based on the need, all the way until the point where um, the end of life occurs. So that that particular practice area addresses reproductive um, and women's health needs, whether it be contraception, um, screening, and prevention, um, whether it be managing um, midlife changes, um, also known as menopause, (laughs) um, or just being, uh, sometimes just being a listening ear for women. Um, and being empathetic and, and sympathetic. And so um, so I've actually been a nurse for 30 years, um, and, and I did not really see myself in the women's health or obstetric ring um, 30 years ago. But thanks to my own life experience and a very high-risk pregnancy back in 2001, um, my interest was piqued as well as the experience that I encountered sent me in the direction of obstetrics at the time. And because of that, I decided to go and do my nurse practitioner in women's health, and that encompassed the entire spectrum. So that's kind of what it is and how I got there. Wonderful. And it, it's so interesting how people find find where they're supposed to be, right, and what their passion is. And I'm, I'm so glad that there are people with passions for, for different areas of health and that they really invest in that, grow, the, grow their expertise in that area, and then are willing to come and share with our listeners. So I chose this topic um, because January is Cervical Health Awareness Month. So I feel like that was a great time for us to kind of hone in and talk about this. But for people who may not know, like, what is a cervix? So, yes, um, this is a perfect time of the year because, number one, it's a new year um, under the insurance uh, side of things. So it's time to start looking at your yearly yearly exams and physicals and those types of things and not trying to cram it in in December. But 
So for those that don't know, the cervix is actually the lower portion of the uterus. Um, anyone that's not that's listening that's not really sure what the uterus is, that's actually where the baby grows. And um, so the cervix is the portion of the uterus that actually dilates and opens to allow for a successful vaginal delivery. And so there are a variety of things that, that play into cervical health, right? We can talk about you know, infections that, that women may encounter um, that can affect the cervix. But when we, at least when I think about the cervix in general and we think about cervical health, it kind of hones into to cervical cancer, and that's where a lot of the awareness is around this type of uh, this time of the, uh, the year as well is on cervical cancer uh, prevention and screening and and treatment. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about you know kind of the scope of the problem with cervical cancer. You know, it's it it's not doesn't often get as much. Um, coverage time as breast cancer, but it is still a very, very important um, uh, factor affecting women. So it's actually been kind of interesting to see um, how we screen and manage cervical cancer and even cervical changes over the years. Um, I'm going to date myself and say back in the day, um, the recommendation was that as soon as a, um, a woman becomes sexually active, mm-hmm. that cervical screenings are supposed to begin. Well, thanks to things like we do there at UNC with um, research mm-hmm. and over time, we realized, you know what, that might not be the best thing for these, for these young people. Mm-hmm. And let's wait and start this a little bit later in life. And as we learned more about the real cause of cervical cancer, um, human papillomavirus, which I'll talk about, um, we were able to make some changes and some tweaks and I think really screen more appropriately. Um, the One of the best things, if you have to choose some best things about cervical cancer, because nobody likes to hear the word cancer right. at all, is that cervical cancer is preventable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's highly preventable, and it's also highly curable um, if it's caught early. Um, that's, that's one of those things that's hard for anybody to hear anything you say after you say the word cancer to them. But if you can get that across that, hey, you know what, this is, this is very likely curable, then you can kind of get them back, get their focus back right. and, and start, start looking at, at treatment and, um, and outcomes and that type of thing. Um, so, yeah, so cervical cancer, you know, they found out pretty much that it is linked directly to the human papilloma right. um, virus. And um, do you want me to go ahead and talk to that a little bit? Yeah, or, sure. Yeah, we can absolutely okay. talk about that. So, um, and that's kind of a, right. a, a more, um, we're starting to hear about that more. So let's talk about what, because you may hear it abbreviated HPV, right? So human papillomavirus, what is that? So human papillomavirus actually is the most common sexually transmitted infection. Now that right there kind of freaks people out, especially if they've been, you know, with one partner for right. all of their life. But um, interestingly, um, it can still occur even if you've only been intimate with one person. But it is very common. It's very prevalent. And the more we're seeing sexually active teenagers at earlier and earlier ages, um, then the more we are seeing this this occur. Um, HPV, again, it is viral, and it can actually affect affect a woman vaginally, anally, or orally, depending on um, exposure. And a person with HPV, like any other STI pretty much, can pass that on to someone else without having any evidence, any obvious signs of, 
you know, infection. We think about the common cold and even COVID, you know, you, you're not symptomatic right. with TV. You're not coughing and sneezing and carrying on and, and you're not, you don't have obvious symptoms. And so it can be, it can be transmitted. But the interesting thing is if, if you have had, um, an intimate relationship, sexual activity with someone, then there's pretty much a good chance that you have been exposed. Um, so let me let me just hit on kind of who's at risk. Because okay. with a lot of things, especially here in the South, with heart disease and diabetes, you know, we can just about list out all the risk factors, who's at risk, that type of thing. But the big statement here is nearly all people who are sexually active will become infected with HPV at some point in their lives. And I think that's something that people don't know. That, right. oh, wait, what do you mean I, I'm going to become infected? Because it's just that prevalent. So it's not a matter of becoming infected as much as it is how your body handles it. Um, you know, how your body is able to either manage it and eradicate it, or if it can't, then that's where you come into what we consider who's at risk. So, first of all, it's going to be your immune weakened individuals. Anyone with a weak immune system that can't fight off the HPV infection, then it's going to be harder for them to eradicate that in a short amount of time. Um, and then, interestingly, smoking and even breathing in secondhand smoke is a risk factor for the progression of um, HPV to cervical cancer. Um, and you think about that, you're like, okay, well, that doesn't... Right, those are not connected. <laughs> it's like, okay, I've got a visual here, and I don't see that happening. Um, but it's just because of the what smoking does just to the body itself. Right, the damage to actually the DNA. Really yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but that's just interesting how over the years research has found that. And then, like I mentioned earlier, just becoming sexually active at an early age. Um, you know, the risk of high-risk HPV. So there's low-risk HPV strains. There's high-risk HPV strains. Um, but the risk is persistent. You know, if you're intimate, if you're sexually active, then you are at risk. And so the earlier you become sexually active, then the more um, exposure, I guess, is the best way to say that. Um, that you will have over time. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's, it's so interesting how, you know, we can find these different risk factors that we may not have, have known about before, like, like smoking, which doesn't necessarily intuitively make sense when you think about when we're talking about cervical cancer. But for me, as a lifestyle medicine provider and a, you know, preventive medicine um, practitioner, I get excited about that because that's a modifiable risk factor that I can help people with, you know, that can help reduce that risk through um, smoking cessation and, you know, different um, programs and different techniques that way. Um, so, you know, I think it's important um, to kind of remind people about HPV and that there are like tons of strains of HPV, um, like over 100 different strains of human papillomavirus. And that can be like a wart, you know, like that's caused by HPV. And then, of course, you can think about things like genital warts, and those are more the lower risk strains of HPV. And then you mentioned that high risk um, strain of HPV um, that is right. more closely linked and, to cervical cancer. And I, I can just be very honest and very frank. One of my favorite populations to talk to and to work with when it comes to reproductive health are adolescents. Um, I think some of that is because, you know, a lot of times, young girls, they will, they're scared to talk to their mom, not scared out of fear, but 
I don't know if I can talk to them and, and really get that open, you know, communication. And so I just keep it very real. We talk very open and very honest about things. And, um, and we're talking about prevention and we're talking about protection. And, and we talk about things like genital warts that, you know, in the heat of the moment, nobody flips the light on to check things out. Right. So, um, you know, that's why we talk so much about prevention um, and protection. And you don't think about the fact that something that small or what seems so insignificant could actually be a precursor to cancer. Yep. Thanks for joining us today here on Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at UMMC. And joining me today, I have Tara Price. She is a women's health nurse practitioner, and we're talking about cervical health awareness today. If you have a question or a comment for us, we would love to chat with you today. So before we were talking about HPV and and what that means, and Tara, I want to make sure that our listeners don't um, miss the fact that HPV is not just a, a women's health issue, right? Men have HPV as well, right? Correct. Yes, that can it, it, it affects women and um, and males, which is which is why when we talk about the vaccine, you'll see that it's recommended for both young young right. men and, and yeah. Right. And, you know, you mentioned um, that we can get HP inve- HPV infection in you know, vaginal tissue, anal tissue. And then we also want to remember oral and it can actually be a significant risk factor for head and neck cancers as well. So HPV prevention in general is an important topic um, to cover. And so I'm glad that we're able to, to marry it with um with the cervical health as well. So, you know, I love prevention. I always want to think about how do we stop things from happening uh, in the first place. Um, And you mentioned vaccination. And so um, talk to me a little bit about how vaccines can help with cervical cancer. Yes. So as I mentioned earlier, cervical cancer, again, highly preventable, highly curable is called. So the prevention piece um, comes in with things just like your vaccination, screening, and follow up. Those are going to be the three, the three key, um, the key aspects. So one of the questions that that people say, well, you know, do we do we need to wait until I'm sexually active to take the vaccine? No, that's actually the complete opposite of what we want to see happen. Um, we want to get that vaccination in before that sexual um, activity has started taking place, because as I said earlier the majority of individuals will be infected at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, yeah, so vaccination actually, um, it is safe. It is effective. It's, it's been around um, the older I get, the longer I realize, oh, my gosh, this is, I know. This is, this is my LPN days when, uh, when the HPV vaccine came out. Um, but it is, um, it is recommended for females and males between the ages of 9 and 45. Um, in the United States. So the prime age that they really target is those 11, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. But um, we are seeing uh, younger, sexually active, um, I hate to say teenagers because less than 13 is technically not a teen because it doesn't have the word teen in it. Um, but those tweens, I guess, is what we're calling mm-hmm. them now. So that is why they did um, look and say we can start this as early as nine years of yep. age. Um, to be able to get that on board and um, and and get that in their systems and 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 ready to go um, when that when that first encounter does happen, um, and it is recommended for um, of course up to age 26 
So I, I know I said 45, but some adults actually who are not already vaccinated um, that are older than 26, um, based on their health care provider's recommendation and discussion, they may consider taking the vaccine. Right. Um, perhaps it's someone who has been out of a relationship for quite a period of time or a new long-term partner, um, then there may be that consideration. So that's why it has been you know, tested and proven to have some effect and some improvement, even up to the age of 45. Right. And, you know, you mentioned it's been around for a while. And uh, when I first uh, started practicing as a nurse practitioner, we kind of had we had uh, Gardasil, the original Gardasil, uh, which was a quadrivalent, had four um, four strains. And then we had Cervarix as well. Now, um, the one that is available in the U.S. is Gardasil 9. And that 9 is just for how many strains, right? How many strains of HPV that it's effective against? And it's targeted toward those high-risk strains, right? Yes, yes. And it's actually what they have that what they have shown is that Gardasil 9 is almost 100% effective in preventing cancer that is caused by the, the seven specific cancer-causing um, HPV strains. So that's pretty significant. Yeah, absolutely. And it does have genital warts, but, um, but gosh, almost 100% effective, that's significant. Right. And it is a, a two-dose series, right? So yeah. um, Gardasil 9, it, you mentioned 11 to 12 is kind of that recommended uh, age range to um, to get that first vaccine. And it's usually, you know, six months to 12 months after um, for that second one. Correct. Right. Correct. Um, but you can, um, like, if you're older, and I, I believe this is correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're older or you've not been vaccinated before, some people may need a third dose. Correct. And that, I think we find that out after years with just about any vaccine. I can remember back on the MMR booster, oh, you know what, we need to add this in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and um, and so, you know, completely makes sense. And that, you know, that may continue to, to be the case. But, um, you know, getting those, those young individuals when their systems are still, their immune systems are still developing and, and growing and strengthening as opposed to those my age where it's beginning to deteriorate. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, if you've got, I imagine this is a, a conversation that happens every day in healthcare providers' offices. I know I've had it with patients who've come in with me. Like, they don't want to, you don't want to think about your 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old being sexually active, right? So, and you've touched on it a little bit, but, you know, the importance of getting this vaccine before sexual activity starts. But, you know, how do how do parents approach that? And, you know, what are the kinds of conversations that you have with your child um, prior to vaccination with uh, HPV so, vaccine? Yeah. So a lot of times, um, especially when I was in private practice, moms would come in for their yearly exam and they would get check their boxes on all their stuff. And I could tell they still wanted to talk. And so they would begin to talk about their teenage daughter. And um, and, and they, they were uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. my thing was always, you know what? They don't have to have an exam. We don't have to look at them. They don't have to take their clothes off. Just make an appointment and bring them back and let's talk. Let me talk to them. And so that's one thing is if you, if you know that it's going to be difficult for a parent to have the conversation, then offer to have the conversation with them um, or for them even right. initiate it. Um, I think it's, it's definitely wrong to just assume that all teenagers are sexually active because that is not the case. Right. Um, and, but it's also, um, I think it's also dangerous to be naive. To think they're um, not. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, I, I, I you know, I've, I've delivered 11 and 12 year old young girls. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's one of those things that you have to kind of find that balance. But the key here is not really discussing sexually active or not and how we feel about it and do we support it. It's a matter of what, it, what do we want for your child's quality of life down the road? Do we want to decrease their risk of things like cervical cancer, which cervical cancer, having that can then influence their ability to have children one day mm-hmm. and um, and just the relationship factor. And um, so you kind of have to get past that shock of, oh, my gosh, my child could be sexually active. And let's focus on what we really need to do, and that's prevent long-term health care um, uh, issues and illness with your child. Yeah. And, you know, the question I always get asked about side effects um, with vaccines. Are there any particular side effects that are more common with HPV or is it more the pain at the injection site, redness, fever, that kind of stuff? Just your typical stuff. But even that, that just, oh, well, it hurts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, of course, now that kind of thing is the thing you have to convince the actual individual getting the shot. You know, you have to. You have to kind of say, okay, it's going to be a little thing. It's going to be, it's going to hurt for a minute. But no, that's interestingly, there have not been any, what I always tell my students, find that odd, rare side effect or that odd, rare um, thing that happens. And that's not the case with Gardasil. It's just your typical, you know, body ache, flu, maybe low grade fever and pain at the site. That's wonderful. So uh, when we, you mentioned that it's a you know, sexually transmitted infection, HPV is, and usually when we think about STI prevention, we think about condoms, right? Is there any utility for condoms in specifically the role of HPV prevention? So, yes. Anytime, um, to me, when I think about the word sex or sexually active, the first thing I think of is condoms right. because number one, you can get them. You don't have to go see a provider to get that or to, you know, to access that. Um, and so, yes, condoms are always going to be um, always going to be recommended. And they condoms do prevent some sexually transmitted diseases and will decrease the risk of HPV transmission. However, nothing is 100 percent but abstinence. Right. Um, you know, it's rather difficult to get an STI if you are abstinent. Um, so any exposure to HPV can be um, decreased by the use of condom. Now, like I mentioned earlier, even sometimes with just skin-to-skin contact, mm-hmm. um, you can have transmission. And again, the person infected is not even aware that they have HPV so they definitely can't be aware that there's a risk of them passing it on knowingly. All right. And that's kind of that second question I had, like, are there any symptoms? And there's not. You know, it's it's not one of those things that, just like you mentioned, you're not coughing and sneezing and snotting and all the other <laughs> kinds of things that we tend to think about with communicable diseases. Nor do um, the majority of people, you know, have a, a wart that you may see or a lesion or a bump or, you know, discharge or any of these different kinds of things that might clue you into. I have something I could give someone else. So there's layers of protection is what, you know, what we want to talk about is layers of protection and, you know, condoms absolutely play a role in that. And, and for any sexual contact, right. You know, even if it's not traditional vaginal intercourse, condoms are our friend. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, I think sometimes that we we're scared to even talk about that, but we still talk about abstinence as well, you know, um, in the school-based clinics, that's one of our big things is because that is the stance is it's abstinence plus um, right. because we just be realistic. Um, but at the same time, just, 
you know, covering it up. It's like a wound. If you cover it up, you're going to get benefits, um, protecting it from the outside outside world. And uh, same type of principle. Yeah. And so when we layer in those, you know, those stages or layers of protection, you know, abstinence is one use of um, you know, protective devices like condoms are one use of a vaccine um, to make sure that we have, you know, as much immunity as possible on board. And then kind of the, the next piece is that that early detection. Right. So yeah. we want to ideally prevent things ever from happening. But if we don't prevent it from initially starting, we sure want to catch it very, very early on so that we can start the appropriate treatment, other screening exams, those types of things to limit any damage or long-lasting effects from those kinds of things. So I know you mentioned um, the the pap smear test, which a lot of women are probably familiar with that term, at least, um, may not always be as familiar as what goes on during that process and, and um, how frequently that needs to be done and when that needs to be started. Um, and just like you mentioned, as research has improved and as you know, more things have, have come into light, those guidelines change sometimes about you know when those were started. I know, just like you mentioned, when I first started practicing, it was at first um first sexual encounter uh, is when you should start having those pap tests right or even if you were going to go get an oral contraceptive you pretty much got a pelvic exam um during that time and those things have have changed and adapted over time as we've learned more about um you know actually what we're trying to pick up on and what we're trying to catch and um part of that is hpv can be cleared by the body naturally right I lost you for just a second oh, there. I thought I heard you were talking about HPV clearance. Yeah, so HPV can be cleared by the body, right? So when we yeah. screen people super young, sometimes we find stuff that isn't important yet, right? It, right, exactly. And we have people freaking out for no reason. Right. Um, and that's clinicians included. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know the first time I ever got an abnormal report, I was like, okay, all right. What do we do about this? You know, so it's an important that we're matching um, screening tests to the appropriate population at the appropriate time at the appropriate risk so that we get people connected with the correct resources that are available. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell. Joining me today is Tara Price, and we are talking about cervical health awareness today. Before the break, we um, mentioned pap smears, which is often not a woman's favorite term to hear, but it is something that is very, very important. Um, we've been talking about the importance of prevention of cervical cancer, but also early detection and treatment. And so one of the ways we do that is with a pap smear. So Tara, tell me, tell me what it is and when we should start getting that. So the current recommendations are actually that the screenings begin at 25. Now, you will see some um, providers and even some of the literature from a year or so ago say 21. Mm -hmm. But the big shift has actually been um, in 2015, uh, American College of of Obstetrics and Gynecology, as well as American Cancer Society, all the people uh, came together and decided that, as we mentioned earlier, HPV can be self-limiting, um, and 12 to 24 months can the body can clear it. That that healthy um, body, um, the one without the the immune suppression. Right. So, um, so they they shifted and um, and started decided to start pap smears later in life. So 
the recommended is going to be 25. Now, with saying that, if, if I were to have a young lady come in at 21, 22, she's preparing to be married, um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing the path at that point. It's the less than 21 mm-hmm. that is considered a, a no-no, for lack of a better term, right. um, at this point. So, yeah, so 25 to 65 is when, um, when your pap smears or cervical screenings should occur. And so another shift is they went from having them every year, like you literally went every year and you had this done, to now every three to five years. And so if you're doing um, just the pap smear alone, then it would be every three years. But if they're doing what we call co-testing, so they're testing for a, um, doing a pap and an HPV test, they can do that every five years. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of become the standard mm-hmm. is um, people will go in, they'll have their pap, the clinician will um, order for it to reflex to HPV. So if there's any abnormality, they're automatically going to um, re- reflex for HPV testing. So the big, um, let me see how to say this. The big barrier <laughs> is that um, insurance has got on board as well. And um, they will now only pay for it every three to five years based on results. So I say all that to say this. If, if you are a, a woman that's in her late 50s, early 60s, and you're like, no, I've got to have mine every year, your provider can do that. But it's just it's out of pocket for right. you. So don't think that's not an option, um, especially if that is something you're concerned about um, or worried about. A lot of it speaks to what will insurance allow, what will they pay for, um, and and that type of thing. The basic thing is, remember, just get screened regularly. Right. Uh, and so one of the confusing factors of switching from the old way to the new way in 2015 is patients thought, Oh, okay. I only have to come every five years. Right. Absolutely. This is, I was hoping you were going to talk about this because this is so misunderstood. Yeah. It's like, no, I need to see you. I need to lay my eyes on you. I need to talk to you. There are still things we need to consider. There are still things we need to test for every year. You know, pretty much, I would say more than 95% of, of medical insurance covers a yearly wellness And so for women, we're very, very bad about not having a primary care provider or a primary practice provider. We're just going to go to our OBGYN and let them do everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, which is okay to an extent, but when you start having like blood pressure and cholesterol issues, I'm going to have to find you one of my friends. Yeah, you can come see me. Yes, then I'm going to call Josie and say, I got you one. Um, But, um, yes, so you still have to go every year. Um, Just because you're not having the actual pap smear collection does not mean that your provider does not need to perform a pelvic exam to see if there's any tenderness, to see if they can feel any abnormalities, um, and for lack of a better term, mash on your belly um, to make sure that their exam has not changed from the year before. So I think that was the first kind of, oh, gosh, we didn't make this clear to people. Um, And we lost some people um, coming in yearly. So I think we're on the we're getting better about that um, now. But yeah, so the actual pap smear performed every three to five, but still go see your provider every year. Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned co-testing. And so I want to spend just another minute on that. So when we think about the pap smear, a pap smear, we're actually 
going into the vaginal canal and we're using some instruments and we're getting some actual tissue, some cells off of the cervix and we're putting them in a little jar. We're sending them off to the lab. They look at it and they, they actually can tell us the types of cells that are in there so that we can find out any, what we usually call precancerous cells or cells that are just kind of starting to change maybe where they shouldn't be changing. Um, and so that's kind of the pap part. And then the HPV part, the co-testing part of that, actually looks for the presence of those um, of the virus, of the HPV virus. So um, they kind of go hand in hand. And you mentioned that reflexing. And so when you we get the cells, we send the cells off. If there's anything that looks not normal, then it that kind of automatically runs the HPV um, HPV test on that, so that we can see if there's a high risk strain of HPV going on. Now, what about ladies who have had a hysterectomy? What do they need to do in terms of um, pap smears? Is that still a thing that they need to do? So interestingly, it kind of depends on the reason for their hysterectomy. Like if they had to have a hysterectomy because of cervical cancer, um, or maybe they had a, a what we call a high level precancerous cell then screening still needs to be performed. There is a a very small percent of women that actually will experience a vaginal cancer Mm -hmm. after hysterectomy. Um, And and let me just say this. Hysterectomy is removal of the uterus and the cervix. This is something else that a lot of our patients get very confused about. Yes, they do. Yes, they'll say, well, I had a partial Mm -hmm. hysterectomy. Well, to me, that means they left your cervix. Cervix still there, yep. a big part of your uterus so that's even more important for me to know but um they're saying they took my uterus left my ovaries mm-hmm. there's a whole other term for removal of the ovaries and it's super long <laughs> yes <laughs> and if you take the um, tubes too you add some more some more good medical words in there yes yeah, so you have to really do some digging and and really pulling information out of people you may even have to ask for previous you know, surgical reports to really know what they took. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, that, and so, that happens a lot. People tell me a lot, well, I had a partial hysterectomy. And I'm like, do you mean that, that you still have your cervix or you mean you still have your, your ovaries and your, you know, your fallopian tubes and that kind of stuff? And, and nine times out of 10, it's, oh, no, I just still have my ovaries. Like they took everything else. Uh, and that's just important because so, that helps us with screening, right? I'm not going to well, do a pap smear if you don't have a cervix. Right. And if you have had a partial hysterectomy that means they left your cervix that Mm -hmm. means they they removed the uterus just to pour just above the cervix and so you know what you still need pap smears right still get cervical cancer if you have a cervix uh but they're like but i don't have a period anymore i get that but Mm -hmm. cervix is still there so so the hysterectomy question a lot of times takes a little bit more um, a little bit more decision making and history digging to really figure out how that is done. Um, and so, one of the things I kind of say, look, as long as your insurance will pay for it and you're comfortable with having it done, let's just screen while you're here. Yeah, and at least the pelvic exam portion, right? You know, if you, right, you know, if you've had a hysterectomy and um, you, it was not for a, a cancerous reason, like maybe it was for heavy bleeding or you know, fibroids or you know whatever. Um, just like we don't not go um, for every three to five years uh, now that the guidelines have changed, 
you don't just not go now that you've had a hysterectomy because if you've still got ovaries, then your healthcare provider needs to be doing that what we call a bimanual exam, which is pelvic exam, where they feel around and mash around and those kinds of things because we're making sure we don't feel anything, any lumps, any bumps, any masses, anything growing in there. And it's also a great time to check, you know, how the bladder's doing, how um, the rectum is doing because as we age and those pelvic muscles don't, they don't age as well. Oh, that's what I like to yeah, say. Well, they don't age as well. Yeah, <laughs> Some things can kind of start to shift around. Yes, everything heads south. And it's so funny because I literally just watched a TikTok that I sent to a friend of mine who's having her birthday today. And it's this lady who tells her daughter, she says, I need you to look. Um, look I need you to take a look. I have a hole between my breasts. And her daughter's like, uh, okay, mom. And she pulls open her robe and she says, mom, that's your belly button. Oh, my goodness. Like, yeah, so it's like, yeah, everything shifts, everything changes. And so that exam for the clinician, you know, they can actually help to teach the patient, hey, we're, you know, the bladder seems a little bit lower than it did before. Right. And um, I don't recall us having this conversation. And let's talk about whether it's some pelvic rehab, uh, pelvic floor rehab. So that it doesn't get to really affect her quality of life. Right, absolutely. Because those can lead to things like recurrent urinary tract infections, urinary incontinence, just, you know, hurting when you pee, all of these different kinds of things that we can intervene in and, and help you take yeah. care of. All right, before we... Um, before we finish the show, I absolutely want to talk about what happens when an abnormal result comes in. But I want to grab our last break of the show before um, before we head into that topic. Um, oh, we may not be able to take that last break. That's okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll dive right in. Um, and let's talk about um, when you get a result, right? So a lot of times we get automated results when it comes to our pap smears. Like we make, I get a little card from my provider that has a number on it for me to call and get my result. Um, when it comes back and it says negative or normal, like what does that really mean? So I'm just going to tell you, the word normal is not a word that I like. I know, I don't like it either. I tell my students all the time, I'm like, look up the definition of normal. Like there's not one. <laughs> Like, how do you, what are you measuring it against, you know? But basically, when it comes to the pap smear, it's telling you that there were no cell changes uh, found on your cervix. So um, so that's a good thing. That's, that's the result. That's a good thing that we want to see. Um, no new cell changes. So compared to your last pap, you are all still good. So we like the word negative mm -hmm. or normal in that sense. Yes. And it usually comes with several big words together. At least the reports that, that your healthcare provider gets, it'll say negative for intraepithelial lesion or malignancy. Very, very fancy sounding thing. Um, but it says either satisfactory or unsatisfactory. That's another point. So tell me what would make a sample unsatisfactory. So maybe there's not enough cells. Mm. And we see this either with. Um, if you've got someone who has a, what we call a posterior cervix where the cervix is not just right there upon entry of the um, just past the vaginal introitus, it's harder to get that brush or that little spatula to the cervix, then you may not get um, the cell that you, the cells that you need. Mm -hmm. The other thing we see it is in our postmenopausal women who have what we call atrophic um, changes and so the cervical cells are just not as prevalent um, as they once were. So depending on if this is okay they're having their pap and they're going to come back in five years they may go ahead and bring them back in and repeat it mm -hmm. uh, 
kind of depends, but if they've always had norms and, you know, there's, there's no big risk factors, they may just say, you know what, we'll just repeat this the next time that it's due. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what we're trying to get, you know, when you look at the cervix, it, it looks like a, a donut kind of, yeah. um, and the the hole in the donut and it's not a wide open hole it gets it it widens for a baby to come out but normally it's pretty tightly closed um the cells that are in that little dent in the middle of it that's kind of where we start to see um cells that turn precancerous right or that start to um to develop a little bit differently so that's actually what your provider is trying to trying to get to um is is we call it a transformation zone yeah, if you've ever looked, most people don't look at the instruments their providers using. I'm one of those nosy people. Oh, yeah, I me like, too. I'm like, what are we doing down there? Let me see. I want to hold it, you know. <laughs> um, and my friends really know me. They know that's the case. But it's it's not a straight type of brush. It's angled in the middle, so it actually is able to enter the actual cervical eyes to get those inner cervical cells, which is real, what you're really going for. Yeah. And just like you mentioned, you know, in a perfect world, when we go to do one of those, the cervix is just sitting right there, just looking at us and we, it's easy to get to. But, um, I mean, I am not a women's health nurse practitioner. I've done a gabillion pap smears and it's very, it's not, it's not super um, common that it's just sitting there staring right at you every time you, you try to do one of those things. So sometimes they may be tilted, uh, tilted up and sometimes they may be tilted down. Sometimes they may be tilted to the side or side. So if you ever, you know, you feel like your practitioner might be moving around a little bit, hopefully they're telling you what they're doing, but that may be, they're maybe repositioning um, their instruments so that they can get the best sample because we are trying to get that, that special zone of cells so that we have, you know, a good degree of confidence in um in the quality of the sample that we're getting so that you can um you know feel comfortable with your results that you get now what are some of the abnormals um that you may see or some of the the things that are not negative so you you still might get what's called unclear where it's like it'll it'll say like atypical like they're not really sure you may see the word equivocal It's kind of like, we can't tell you this is negative or normal, but we also can't tell you that this is suspect for, you know, lesion or cancer. So we call it ASCUS. Um, And so in that case, a lot of times you will just repeat a path in six months Mm -hmm. uh, and just see if anything, you know, has changed. Um, But then you'll get those that are abnormal and suspect, and they will actually grade those. Um, They will call them either low-grade or high-grade, low-grade being less suspect for cancer, high-grade being very suspect for cancer. And then with the high-grade, they'll actually break that down into what we call CIN 1, 2, 3. Um, And, of course, the higher the number, the the higher the the chance of a cervical cancer. So based on how the reading comes back is how you make your, you know, your next decision. Mm -hmm. But let me speak to the PAP. I mean, we spoke to the PAP side. Since we're having the HPV co-testing, a lot of the way that you figure out what you're going to do is based on that positive or negative HPV result. So because we know that HPV is the big precursor to cervical cancer, we test for HPV with PAP. It is, if it is negative, doesn't matter the strain. That means that there is no presence of HPV detected. Then we're less concerned because it's less likely to be a cervical cancer. Um, but if it is positive, then those are the ones that we're going to move forward with more testing, mm-hmm. whether it's a cervical biopsy, an excision of the cervix, 
um, cryo, a freeze procedure, those types of things. Um, and then, um, of course, figuring in those other risk factors, you know, what, what does their past cervical history look like? Is this brand new? Is this different? Right. Are they menopausal? Have they just been pregnant? Are they now pregnant? Because that can change the cervical cell uh, makeup as well. Right. So we've got just a few minutes left in the show, and I want to make sure that we talk about if you've ever had an abnormal pap in the past, does that change the plan for you in terms of the frequency of your screening or the amount of follow-up that you need moving forward? So if you've had one in the past, but you're normal now, you tend to fall into the normal recommended screening. The caveat is when was the past? Like if it was last year, you're probably going to be on every six months pap smears, especially if you had some type of cryotherapy, biopsy or something along those lines. It kind of depends on when the past was. Let's say you were 27, had an abnormal pap, and then by 30 you had normals, you're now 50, you're going to fall right into the the regular screenings for someone who's never had an abnormal pap. Um, and it also depends on what was the abnormal. Was right. it just clear? Was it just an abscess that came back clear six months later? Because that's no indication to, you know, um, to repeat PAP any more frequently. What is their HPV status? Have they always tested negative? You're going to fall right into the normal screening guidelines. So it's so really, think- yeah, it's like a, it's a very individualized discussion that needs to happen. So, yeah. You know, I can't, and I, and I talk on the other show about the partnership between healthcare providers and patients and how that we really are a team. And so this is, this is no different. You know, I'm a team with my patients who are wanting to lose weight or change their diet, those kinds of things. You're your women's health provider, whether that be a women's health NP or a midwife or a, you know, OBGYN or your primary care provider, your family medicine um, provider, y'all are a team. And so if there's ever anything that you're unsure about, we want you to ask us, right? You know, I mean, we want you to have those conversations with us so that we can make sure you're getting, getting exactly what you need and that you're never left wondering. We want, we want our patients and our population to feel like they are at the center of this entire plan. And so they are, they are a part of the team. It's not just the physician and the NP and the person in the lab and the sonographer. You're a part of this team. So, you know, let your voice be heard and let's make these decisions and plans together. And, and that you're comfortable with the steps that we're taking, right? Sometimes it can be, just like you mentioned, that cancer word is scary, but even just hearing the word abnormal pap can be, be very scary, yeah. right? You know, and so let us answer those questions that you may have. And if we throw out even scarier terms, like you mentioned, cryotherapy, um, sometimes you'll hear words like um, colposcopy and leap procedures and all these different kinds of things. And those sound scary, you know, right. I mean, they, they really, they really do. And so it's really important that we kind of aren't afraid to break it down and really get and work with each other on taking care of women. All right, guys, Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Josie Bidwell. Thanks to my guest, Tara Price, for being on with us today. Southern Remedy for Women is produced by Jay White, and the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.